Hey everybody and welcome back on the Macro Compass. This is Off Speaking and do you think the labor market is hot? Think again. The labor market holds the key to the Fed's stance in 2023 and especially at turning points, looking beyond the main headlines in macro data can make the difference in understanding where do we really stand in the macro cycle. And on Friday last week, the last U.S. payroll report was tagged as very strong. But if you look deeper, you realize that the current state of the U.S. labor market is far from hot, actually. Job creation is clearly trending down. Alternative real-time and forward-looking labor market indicators both point to a sharp deterioration ahead. Most importantly, statistical inconsistencies are artificially boosting non-farm payrolls to the point that's actually true, that the US government reached out to me to ask if I could help them look into it. Now, the labor market holds the key to the Fed reaction function in 2023, and it will therefore be a crucial driver of asset class performance. Calling it right can make the difference for portfolios next year. That's why I decided to dedicate this article to dissect the latest labor market report, starting from a deep look into the Bureau of Labor Statistics official data and then moving into the alternative real-time and forward-looking job market indicators to really grasp where do we stand here on the labor market and lately and ultimately assess what that implies for the Fed policy and portfolios in early 2023. In macro, often the devil is in the details and the labor market is much less hot than you think. Before we start, let's get one thing straight though. We are not in a recession yet. Job losses aren't here yet. Nominal wages are still growing. The labor market, though, is clearly deteriorating fast. Its current state is not very tight, as we often hear. And looking forward, it might get real ugly, according to my forward-looking macro indicators. Let's start assessing the non-farm payroll report and then move on to more nuanced assessments. Now, the non-farm payroll was okay, but beat expectations, we had even small net positive revisions. Nominal wage growth, surprise on the upside, and I can agree on the fact that wage growth is way too strong to achieve 2% inflation right now. It's rather consistent with 4, 4.5 core inflation, way too high for the Fed. But guys, nominal wages are possibly the most lagging macrocycle indicator of them all. So follow me for a second. For nominal wages to drop, you need the following sequence. You need forward-looking growth down, activity down, Companies cutting discretionary spending first as the economy slows down. You need consumption to drop as a result. You need then companies to assess the fact that even consumption is dropping together with economic growth. So they're going to cut capex. They're going to cut excess labor that maybe they hired during an economic expansion. Activity is going to go down further. And only at that point, companies are going to cut core labor. Finally, after companies start cutting core labor, you'll see nominal wages trending down because the demand supply in the job market finally rebalances. It takes quarters and quarters and quarters for this to unfold in real economic data. Now, we are looking at U.S. wage growth being still relatively strong as effectively the result of the economic growth of 2021 being delayed into the labor market. But on top of it, one reason why nominal wage growth is still pretty strong is that there is low participation rate, stubbornly low participation rate. And while it's true that less supply of labor coming back online means more wage bargaining power for people, it also means that there are less people that are actively contributing to economic growth. These people have retired permanently. They are not coming back 
contribute to growth anymore. So focusing only on wage growth here, A, it, it basically doesn't allow us to look forward, but only uh, basically allows us, allows us to look back into a very lagging macro cycle indicator. But most importantly, cannot tell us what's going on right now and likely to go on ahead in the labor market. Therefore, focusing on the momentum of job creation and where these jobs are really created tends to be a more useful forward-looking macro exercise than focusing on wages. Now, I like looking at three-month and six-month moving averages, and that's what I did for the non-farm payrolls. And you can clearly see in the chart that they're trending down on a momentum basis. And in November, the Bureau of Labor Statistics reported that most jobs were created in leisure and hospitality, education, healthcare, and the government. Now, let's, let's discuss for a second these sectors. Well, accommodation and food services are obviously playing catch up with the pandemic disruptions, and it's okay for them to lag in this cycle and actually add jobs uh, very, very late because of pandemic disruptions being now corrected. Job creation, though, in government, education, and healthcare is not necessarily a sign of strong economic activity. And the fact that economic sensitive sectors, really, retail trade, transportation, manufacturing, some areas of housing-related jobs are showing weakness. In some cases, even job destruction is very telling. Those are economic-sensitive sectors. They move first, and they clearly show the direction ahead. You can see the charts in the article. Now, the elephant in the room here is that so far, we talked about non-farm payrolls. And we made an assessment that says, you know, we're not in a recession yet, but clearly job growth is slowing down. Um, and you can see that job creation actually stands in non-cyclical sectors. Well, if you look at economic sensitive sectors, they're actually trending down. It's very clear. We have only talked about the non-farm payroll, but there are some material methodological and statistical issues with the current non-farm payroll establishment survey. And therefore, those numbers might actually be almost totally off. Let's have a look at what is a, another gauge of uh, job market activity where we can look at because a statistically significant survey requires a very large amount of respondents. And the non-farm payroll establishment survey got the lowest response rate in 20 years at only 49%. But luckily, we can benchmark this survey against another regular job market gauge, which is the household survey in the US. And there are three main differences between these two surveys. The first is that the non-farm payroll survey asks business and government agencies about job creation. The household survey, well, they ask households. Second, very important difference. Multiple job holders are counted for each non-farm payroll job in the NFP report. While in the household survey, multiple job holders are only counted once. So if you have three jobs, you're going to count for three units of job creation in a non-farm payroll. In the household survey, you're going to count for one person being employed. The non-farm payroll also makes large use of statistical adjustments, uh, the most important one being net business birth death adjustment. We're going to talk about that. The household survey does not do statistical adjustments. Now, according to the household survey, since March 2022, for eight months now, there has been literally almost zero net jobs being added. While, according to the non-farm payroll, there have been 2.7 million jobs created. Sorry, what? That's a gigantic discrepancy. And also the reason why uh, the US government uh, reached out to me to try and look into this, uh, these numbers. There are statistical adjustments in the establishment non-farm payroll that are very relevant, especially also in November, given the low actual response rate. And I already anticipated 
that one of the statistical adjustments is the net creation of new businesses and the resulting estimated net job creation from these new businesses being created. This statistical adjustment is included in the non-farm payrolls every month. And as recognized by the BLS itself, the pandemic has created major disruptions to these statistical methodologies, which now, you can look at the chart in the article, keeps showing an amount of net new business creation roughly double what it was the average pre-pandemic, which is clearly a strong but artificial boost to non-farm payroll numbers, which explains a lot of the difference with the much weaker household figures, which at this point seem to be more relevant than the non-farm payroll themselves. Generally, household data, a household survey, uh, job market data are more relevant and macro turning point and more statistical significance. Uh, they have more statistical significance than the non-farm payrolls at macro turning points, which is exactly where we are today. But said that, how do we get a cleaner reading of the real state of the US job market? Well, I think there are two decent ways to do that. The first is to look at the current state of the US labor market through the pace of full-time hirings, excluding the multiple job holders. So that's single job holders being hired on a full-time basis, and it's the pace of this hiring activity. And if you look at the chart in the article, you would see that on a rolling six-month change basis, the momentum of US full-time hirings is basically flat, and it's in line with the weakest prints of the last 10 years in the US job market. So we are not having a hot job market on a job creation basis at all. To say actually the truth, we are amongst the weakest levels of the last 10 years, if you exclude the pandemic, of course. Alternatively, you can look at real-time alternative data, which can be very uh, helpful. For instance, LinkedIn collects data on its members, both users and companies, that add new jobs to their profile and put them into a hiring rate index. Now, that LinkedIn uh, gauge of full-time hiring in the US shows that the pace of hiring is markedly down from a year ago. Now, we have established, I think, that the US job market is, to say the least, not as hot as many people think. It's actually weakening pretty fast. The real question now for macro investors like us is what lies ahead for the first quarter next year and how to prepare portfolios for it. Now, of the many uh, forward-looking indicators that we track at the macro compass, I chose to actually show you the U.S. financial conditions against the year-on-year -year change in non-farm payroll hirings. And you can see that sharp deteriorations of U.S. financial conditions lead job creation by nine months on average, which means that if financial conditions deteriorate as aggressively as they did in 2022, the labor market is likely to weaken materially with a nine-month lag. Why this lag? Because financial conditions are generally nothing else than equity valuations and borrowing costs. And if both are deteriorating, companies first cut discretionary spending, then proceed towards hiring freezes. And we're hearing a lot of those over the last few months and only later really actually start cutting labor. It takes a few quarters for tighter financial conditions to hit the labor market. And as you can see in the chart I posted, the 2022 rapid deterioration in financial conditions uh, points to flatlining job growth by March next year. That basically means that the trend on non-farm payrolls being today roughly 270,000 um, on a three-month moving average basis, I expect that to slow down to roughly zero by March next year. Now, in my opinion, it's only a matter of when and not if for the labor market to quickly deteriorate. Or in other words, 
the economy in 2021 was a reflection of the massive monetary and fiscal easing in 2020. The economy in 2023 is going to be the reflection of the massive monetary and fiscal tightening in 2022. Now, if we should expect labor growth to gradually slow down to zero percent by March 2023, and then the economy to fall into a recession, how do asset classes historically perform in this transition period towards a recession? Now, there are two very good historical parallels for that, I think. The best as an early 2001, and another decent historical parallel being late 2007, early 2008. Now, I put a table in the article to show you asset performance between late 2000 and early 2001, but we can summarize it here. In both cases, so both the 2001 and the early 2008 markets, equity indexes dropped an additional 10%, but defensive sectors, utilities, consumer staples, healthcare, they held up better than the broader equity market. The US dollar actually did well in 2001, despite the Fed cutting rates, but in 2008 underperformed as the US housing market crisis unfolded, especially the beginning of 2008. So mixed performance. Commodities and precious metals also had a mixed performance. Government bonds, though, delivered a meaningful positive performance for portfolios in both cases, because either the Fed was already cutting, like in early 2001, or the market was forcing the Fed to reassess their monetary policy stance. As we said, the labor market holds the key for the Fed reaction function in 2023. My base case is that the labor market will materially weaken and lead us into a serious recession. And historically, recessions have always caused inflation to cyclically drop like a stone, and this time will not be different. This will force the Fed, in my opinion, to cut rates aggressively in the second half of 2023, and ultimately to bring them in the 1% to 2% area by early 2024. Now, as we're going to start from almost 5%, that's a proper pivot. But the Fed pivot, because of a bad recession, is not bullish risk assets. As the table above and the summary has shown, equities do not perform well in these periods, but bonds do. Now, subscribers to the Macro Compass paid premium products, stay tuned because my detailed ETF portfolio and tactical trade ideas are soon to be released in January. And this was it for today's guys. Thanks for listening. Again, a quick reminder that from January 1st, getting access to this content and the much more we'll provide will require a paid subscription. As a loyal, the Macro Compass member, you have one last chance to get in with an early bird discount. Until December the 10th, so there are six days left, you can get in by paying nine months instead of 12, and ensure access to the Macro Compass content for the entire 2023. The offer is valid only for another six days. Spots are limited. There are different subscription tiers, so you can check out what suits you the most and grab your last chance to take advantage of this exclusive offer. There are two buttons in the article, one at the end, uh, which says join now, one at the beginning of the article, which says get me in now, if you click on those, you'll land on a landing page that explains the different tier, the different products, and the different prices. Thanks for considering a subscription, and we will talk again next week.